0: If you have a Bible today and you would read along with us, we're going to take a scripture reading this morning from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. The book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. And we'll begin our reading today in verse 1 and read down to verse 7. So it's 1 Timothy, chapter 2. We begin our reading in verse one. It says this. I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I'll conclude our reading this morning. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The title of our message this morning is Christ came to save all. Christ came to save all. We have a very devious thing going on in our nation today, and that is, we divide everybody. If you turn on the news, you probably won't listen to 10 minutes. I would dare to say five minutes, without people being classified as something. The rich, the poor, black, White, Hispanic, Indian, Asian, male, female, old, young, Republican, Democrat. The list goes on and on and on. And it's usually about how one demographic of people are bullying, hating, demonizing, harming the other group of people. And now as we have it, the other group of people are fighting back, and that group is fighting back against them, and it's never-ending. We're just constantly divided. This is nothing new. Satan has been, since the beginning, dividing people, causing anger and hatred, which at the root of all this division, I hope you understand, it's, it's hatred. When you say somebody is xenophobic or racist or sexist, what is the root of that sin? For all of it, it's hate. And one thing that we can be sure of is that Satan hates all of us and works eagerly towards our collective and eternal demise. And he has learned about human nature that if he can turn us against one another to look at each other as the enemy, that he can retreat himself and watch us destroy ourselves. We read in this text, and it's not going to be the focus of our message this morning, but we read in this text Paul giving us a rather profound command, and that is to pray for those who are in authority. Now, if we study and learn who Paul is telling Timothy to pray for, our mouth as Christians would drop. Because any politician currently living in the United States is nowhere as harmful and damaging or has taken actions, no more harmful and damaging, murderous, slanderous, harmful things as the man that Paul is telling Timothy to pray for. And so we look to our leaders. And what we usually find is you either despise the current one or you despise the past one. And the media has helped us to objectify those people, not as people, but as names, as caricatures, and so with little regard for them, we speak with malicious tongues, all the things, how the the idiocy that sometimes they can display, the double talk, the hypocrisy, the harm that they can cause. And we dehumanize them. And Paul here breathes into this text life to those people. They're living beings made in as much as these beautiful children here, made just as much in the image of God And he is advocating for us to pray for those people because they certainly need our prayers. Joe Biden needs our prayers. Donald Trump needs our prayers. If for no other reason, and I want us to see in this text that Paul is enlarging the circle of our concern. And the reason he is doing this is for a wonderful truth. And that is Christ died for everyone. Politicians include it. And he backs up one chapter, if we were, in Paul's opening remarks to Timothy. And he begins to talk about the purpose of God's word going forth through the form of his law. And he says, it's gone forward. Listen to this in verse 9 of chapter 1. Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous man, but for the lawless, and the disobedient, for the ungodly, and for sinners for unholy and profane people, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. He said the gospel message is for all of those people. You see how all-encompassing that is? We learned this morning in Sunday school about pressing towards a higher maturity. And you'll know that you begin to press towards a higher form of maturity when we stop responding the way our culture to demographics of people and uh, qualities that people have and labeling them as all these different labels and we look at people as broken people in need of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And the wonderful message that we have as Christians, that we don't go out and say, this message is for Republicans in the Bible Belt. This message is not for uh, Democrats that have uh, certain virtues that they hold strongly to. It's not for a white middle America group of people. It's not for people who grew up in church reading the scriptures and understanding what it said and having the good instruction that we received this morning in Sunday school, but rather the death of Jesus Christ was meant to be made effective for all people. And this morning, if you're listening to the sound of the gospel, I want you to realize that Satan is actively working against you believing that. He has always tried to convince a group of people that the gospel and the saving grace of Jesus Christ is not for you, but it is. There are some people, and I've heard it myself, they've lived wickedly, sinfully. And I won't this morning ignore the fact that if you have lived in sin, you ought not to. And there should be shame. And there is shame in my sin. And I find myself weekly going before the throne of God and having a hard time raising my head when I recognize the sin that dwells in my mind and that emanates from my body. And I come to the throne of grace in shame, asking God's uh, tolerance and forbearance that I might come to him and him mercifully receive me. And friend, he does. I'm not going to, this morning, be dismissive of your sin. But what I will say is this. Your sin does not disqualify you from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful thing. I can preach a message that Adolf Hitler himself, if he was still alive could still repent and find grace and forgiveness through the power of Christ. This morning, if you're what we call a chronic seeker, Christ died for you. We find this in our churches today. I was one of those who, at a young age, I recognized that I was separated from God. And I began to seek him in a bathroom at my elementary school. And as I called upon him there, I didn't find peace. So I went home, told my mother about it. And there we prayed again. And I didn't find peace. And for the next year and a half, predominantly throughout revival services and periodically through Sunday morning services, I would find myself in a state of desperation. And here is the devious thing that Satan would creep into my mind. I would seek as sincerely as I knew how. And I would listen to the message of the gospel and I would hear things that the preacher would say and I would try to repeat those things thinking that there was virtue in those things that I was saying and there's truth in them. But I would have people encourage me after I would seek the Lord periodically and they would tell me words and things and and I would try to bring those before God. But I began to develop a bias against God. From my vantage point, I was laying before Him all that I knew how. And I walked away disappointed, frustrated. Feeling as though for whatever reason, I just was not going to be saved. And it seemed as though the more that I prayed and failed to find grace in Christ, the more the root of bitterness took seed. And suddenly... Christ was not my savior. He was the one adamantly working against me, preventing me from being saved. Lost friend, there is not one ounce of truth in that thought. Here in our scripture text, we find this wonderful, all-encompassing, that's one of the great things about the Christian religion, you know that? Is it's welcome to all. All. You can study other religions in the world and what you will find is that is not the case. But in the Christian religion, it is unique because the message goes out to all people and God through his words and through his actions has plainly declared it that there might be no, uh, nothing, no ambiguity in understanding that God desires to save you, desires to change you and make you a child of his, knowing him and having his spirit dwelling inside of you. And that when that takes place, you would be cognizant of it. There are many people who live, I would say the majority of religious people today know nothing of what I spoke of earlier when I said that I would go and I would pray and then I would not be saved and then I would pray again and I would not be saved. And yet what this church stands upon is a distinctive in God's word is that when you seek after God, that he will let you know when you have made peace with him. And if you have a form of salvation, if you have a thought about what salvation is that is anything akin to man comforting you even through the word of God and assuring you that you have a a, a place reserved for you in heaven, let me just uh, put in your mind the fact that man does not have the power to assure you of a spiritual transaction between you and God. That is a distinctive And if you'll notice, as our country grows more religious, we become less holy. Because in religion, you find good deeds. In becoming holy, it's that God makes a transformation to who you are. Here in this text, Paul just simply declares, and I've heard People ex- try to explain this word all. And there's a, a growing movement today of people who think that there is just a small elect group of people who God is reserved to go to heaven. But listen to the declaration that Paul makes here, and we'll echo it again in a few other places. Here's what it says. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Lost friend. That's you. You're part of that all. Lest we think that this is the only place. He goes down two verses later and listen to what he says. It says, speaking of the man Christ Jesus from verse 5, who gave himself a ransom. He could have stopped there, but he didn't. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified of in due time. Paul's not the only one writing to Timothy about this. The book of Peter tells us, coming to the end of Peter's writings, the end of Peter's life. He says, For I would not have you, the Lord is not slack, rather, concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Why is he long-suffering to us? So, lost friend, today I want you to know this. You may have lived in wicked, awful sin. You may have lived a life for decades away from God, never allowing the things of God to cross your mind, actively working against, ridiculing, using God's name in vain, harming the cause and the people of God, discouraging people from seeking after God. And yet God tells us through the book of Peter that God was patient towards the world. And then he tells us exactly why he is patient. He's not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's patience with your sin is inextricably linked to the desire God has for you to be saved and the unfoldings of your life When I was a kid, I had some pretty traumatic experiences, and I look back now, and I often wonder, had I been raised in that wonderful two-parent home, growing up with parents who loved me and instructed me in the way of God? I know the the personality that I have, and I've wondered in myself very often, would I have grown up to be a, a young boy of great arrogance and pride? Pursuing inevitably the things of this world, did God know that by allowing extreme hardship in my life, it would break me at this point? pivotal point of my life when I was just coming under the age of accountability, seeking after God. You see, when I went into that restroom that day at that elementary school, I went behind that stall, just like I did every day, and I would lock it, and I would bow next to that toilet, and I would pray for my parents, and my heart was broken, and I was calling out to God to reunite my parents who had been divorced, and I was in this state of a muddled mess, and in the middle of that, as I was calling out to God, God warned me that I had Something of greater concern. And that was that I didn't know him. And so in the middle of my brokenness, God spoke to me. And I was so desperately looking for healing and help. I was willing to listen in that moment. You see, my parents had gone through a lot of trauma here or a lot of hardship years before that. But for whatever reason, remained together. Perhaps they could have still remained together long past that. But for whatever reason, God permitted the events to unfold in such a fashion. My heart was broken and receptive to the message that God desired to save me. And in turn, I began to seek after him. You see, the reason why God is long-suffering to sin is because often he permits the effects of sin to be orchestrated in such a way that it might crush the hearts of lost people and turn them to him. God allows hardship in your life. God allows suffering and trials, as Brother Ron brought up this morning in Sunday school. Very often that people might come to the end of themselves and begin to seek him. You see, Jesus in his words, he was very clear. You know, it's interesting to me that at the very end of the book of Revelation, the ending message is also like this. You know, I love, whenever I study the scripture, sometimes I always like to see what people said at the end of their life. Like What did Jesus say in John 14 through 17? It must be really important because it's the last night of his life. I love reading 2 Timothy because Paul is coming to the end of his life. And I want to know, what is it? The last words. Right? Because I've known many people who I've said, my grandfather was one of those that I knew. And as he uh, was dying and he uh, he took me aside and he brought me down the room in his wheelchair. and He sat me on his lap and it was the last words he was going to speak. You know what they were? Son, I've heard you've been seeking the Lord at your church. This is probably the last time you're ever going to see me. But if you come to know the Lord, you'll see me again in heaven. I was a 10-year-old boy as I was seeking the Lord. Those words often followed me because they were his last words. The book of Revelation, the last words that are spoken say this, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth come, and let him that is a thirst come, and partake of the water of life freely. Listen to the universality of that call. The church, the spirit of the Lord say, come, find God, seek after him. And then it goes a step further and says, if you're thirsty, if you have a void in your heart where you don't know God, Come. And anyone that hears it, come and partake of the water of life freely, open to all. You see, Jesus in his words throughout all the scriptures tell people to come and seek after him, that he's willing to save them. And Jesus not only did that with his words, but thankfully everything that he commands that we can read in word, he embodied in his life. You see, Jesus, unlike people today, was not preferential. I love when the scripture reminds us that God is no respecter of persons as we are. As much as I might strive not to have preference in this life, and that ought to be something that Christians strive for, is to prefer everyone the same, loving them equally as much as God will help you to do so. Here in God's word, Jesus demonstrated that perfectly. In John chapter 3, there's this Nicodemus, this man of an elite status. You know, today, this isn't a popular thing to say, but people are beginning to have a bias and a discrimination against people who are elite. People who are rich. People who are learned. They're now demonized. You hear often the what's meant as an epithet, and that is the top 1% as if that group of people are devils that need uh, to be punished in some fashion. But you know, Jesus, he spoke with those people. You remember that man that comes to Jesus in John chapter 3? And he says, very frankly, Master, what what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? And he began to ask him questions about the kingdom of God. And guess what Jesus does? He begins to one on one evangelize this beautiful message to that man. Unless Jesus be accused of only preferring the elite, I love what the next chapter is. Chapter four. A woman of a different ethnicity. And Jesus begins to talk to her, and the woman is startled. She says, What are you as a Jew speaking to me as a Samaritan? I imagine in this country that's how it was about 150 years ago, don't you think? down in the deep south, where there was true and genuine deep hatred towards people of a different ethnicity. And there were many good and Christian men and women who condescended to people of low estate just like Jesus did in John chapter 4. And he comes to this woman. And is it anything ironic to you that the longest one-on-one evangelism in all of the Bible is to a woman who is as sinful of a woman as you can find anywhere? Woman who Jesus ought not to have cared about from all human standards. And yet, Jesus takes the time. Oh, I believe in that scripture in John chapter 4. It implies that he orchestrated everything about that situation so that he could meet with that woman by himself. He'll do the same to you. John chapter 4, he begins to tell this woman, she's so rattled, she's so overwhelmed. You know what I love about reading about Jesus when he meets those people is how tender and gentle he is. You know, people who are broken in sin are often in a very fragile state. And Jesus just perfectly, delicately speaks into her life with such care and love. That one walked away saved that day. And then she went in so overwhelmed by what Christ had done and begins to tell all these other people about what he had done. And the Bible says, many believed for the sayings of the woman. And others came to see that man, heard him himself, and came to believe. John chapter 5, the man of the pool of Bethesda. 38 years he lay by the pool lane. Now that's a chronic seeker, don't you think? You know, I admire that man. See the, the story in Matt, and, and excuse me in John chapter 5 is that that man he was lame and there was this miraculous event that would take place. He must have seen it before or else he wouldn't have been laying there where an angel would stir up the waters and the first one down would be healed of their infirmity. So there he lay for 38 years waiting for the stirring of the waters. And every time that it would happen, he would try to get in. Someone always beat him. So for 38 years, there he wanted to be healed. And even that chronic seeker looking to be healed, Jesus had not given up on. God had not abandoned and said, good luck. Go find another cure for your remedy. But in a time that God had orchestrated, there Jesus was at the pool of Siloam, ready to heal. Chapter 3, 4, and 5, very different people. The elite, the sinful, the sick. And Jesus took time for them all, one-on-one. But he doesn't stop at that, because we read in John chapter 6 that there were a group of 5,000 people marveling at the things that he said, and so Jesus demonstrates before them who he is by performing these wonderful miracles of feeding the 5,000 with just a few fish and a few loaves to heal them, or excuse me, to save them or to, to show who he was that people might believe on him. In John chapter 6, in John chapter 7, he goes to the temple and he goes to the Pharisees and he witnesses to people who want nothing to do with him. In John chapter 9, there's a man who was born blind from birth, and Jesus comes to him. He heals him and he saves him. John chapter 10. He goes to followers of his. John chapter 11, he goes to a lowly village there in Bethany and heals Lazarus or raises Lazarus from the dead that all these people might believe. You see, John chapter 3 all the way through John chapter 12 is Jesus interacting with all of these various people throughout his life. And I think it's meant to be a clear display that Jesus desires to save all people from every different group. We're the ones that categorize people. We're the ones that put people into little boxes and say, yes, God can do this, and no, God can't do this. We're the ones that discriminate on who ought to hear the message of the gospel and who our prayers uh, be attending towards. God doesn't do that. He longs to save you as long as he longs to save any person who has ever lived in this world. He proves it too. You know, churches sprinkle this land and have for hundreds of years. And people have spent their lives. You know, Paul, he alludes to that in our scripture text. He tells us plainly what Christ does is He's came to save all. And then notice what he says, something that we might not notice in verse 7. He says this: Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and apostle. Or for that purpose, I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. You know that the purpose of this church is to propagate the message of Jesus Christ that all people might hear and be saved. That's why we're here. We're not here to look nice on Sundays, check it off our box, to make ourselves feel good. That's not why we come. We don't come to have a social club. We don't come for any other reason than that we might gather together and be a personification of Christ on earth that we jointly put together by God might reflect the great light of Jesus Christ and might spread that message that is the only saving message the world can know. That's what Jesus said when he left. Right before he left, that's what he told us in the Great Commission, right? Go ye therefore... And teach all nations. He didn't say just in Jerusalem. He didn't say only Jews. He didn't just say Anglo-Saxon Americans. That's not what he said. He said, go to all nations. You know what he does? That's what he does. He sends people through the power of his spirit. You know, we gather together as a church. And it's my prayer over the next however long that God allows me to be pastor at this church. That God would choose some of our young men and women. And send them out to other nations. To reach people. Why? Because that's what God's called us to do. That we as a church might take that glorious gospel being burdened by God's fear, and that's what God does. There have been men and women come from this church in the past who got a burden from people in distant lands that they didn't know and that none of us knew, but God was stirring in their hearts a desire for those people to hear the gospel because what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 is that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to who? To everyone that believes. Notice this morning in all of the scriptures we're mentioning how all-inclusive it is. It is hard to stumble through the scriptures where God tells us to go out where you don't hear some form of everyone can be saved. God set up the institution of his church. Why? Because he wants all people to be saved. He sent them abroad. Why? Because he wants all people to be saved. He called people like the apostle Paul. He says, "Whereunto I was called to be a preacher and apostle. Why was he called to that purpose? That he could send them out. And that all people would be saved. And to this very day, God calls men that they might devote the entirety of their life concerning themselves with the word of God and what the truth of it is and spreading it to a lost world that needs it. And so what do we do? I occupy as much time as God will give me and I'm allowed to. Occupying myself in the word for what reason? Unto what end? That just in case I run into somebody Just in case someone on that video that goes into Old Union's website and hears the gospel, just in case someone has a question, desires to know who God is, these brothers here, these sisters here have devoted their lives to learning the word of God that all people from all backgrounds might come to know him. And we stress and we strain and we pray and we talk and we ask each other to pray for one another because we have people in our own homes that don't know God and we're prayerful and we're careful and we're delicate how that we expound to them the word of truth. I'm so concerned the way that I share the gospel with my kids and the way that I live out before them and I seek the help of my brothers and sisters that I might do it in a fashion that would show clearly the light of Jesus Christ, that my sons would be drawn to the greatness of who he is, knowing that he is calling them as much as he called me. He wants their souls. He wants a relationship with them just as much as he did me. See, God not only said it in his words, he shows it in his actions by his life that he came to seek and to save those that were lost. In his entirety of his life, he gave to that purpose. And then at the very end of it, he set up a replacement of him Oh, it's not a perfect replacement. Nobody can be like he is, but he set up his church to carry on his earthly ministry that until the end of time, there might be a group of people concerning themselves with all people. And then there's the ultimate thing that God did by the giving of his very son. For God so loved, who? For God so loved the world. You know, if you stop and you consider that, you know it's a healthy thing to be overwhelmed. That's really good. We, in our culture, we live in our little bubbles. We have the luxury to do so. We live in our little bubbles, and it amounts to our little home and our little work and the entertainment that we watch on television. We live in this little bubble. Oh, and yet the world is so big. It's so much bigger than our finite minds can understand it to be. And it's a healthy thing. You you and I would pray, God, give me a glimpse of how vast the world is and how desperate they are in need of you. And when God allows us to peer at the world from his vantage point for just a moment and see all the lost and hurting people that are in desperate need It gives fullness to the word, the world. For God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave his only begotten son. That, here's another all-encompassing word, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Lost friend today, I began thinking about this message earlier in the week and there are two groups of people that came to my mind when I began to pray about this message. One, someone who thinks they're so far gone sinfully that God won't save them. Friend, no, that's a lie. It's not true. And the second group of people is those chronic seekers that have sought the Lord often and feel like God has become their enemy, that He is refusing to save them. That's also not true. God is able God is eager to save you. I'll tell this story and I'm done. Last semester, from about August to December, my kids, uh, we decided to set up an incentive program as a part of their school. We homeschool. And so we decided to come up with an incentive program. And so I had told uh, both Jetson and Emmett, if they worked really hard each day, they would either get a check mark or an X. Since there's 90 days in the semester and there's two of them, that's 180 possibilities. And I said, if you get 165 of those, then we'll purchase you a video game system. They don't have one yet. That's what they wanted. So we said, if you get 165 of those out of 180, we'll reward you for that. And so they worked and worked and worked and worked. And it came down the last three weeks. And they had 11 X's and it looked pretty clear that they were going to get it. So I unfortunately started having to look at all the video game systems and consider all the things that were involved in it. And in the last three weeks, something happened. And their behavior changed. And we got about four days from the end. And I came home to Kathleen, and, she, and I said, do they get a check or an X today? And she just kept shaking her head. And she said, I just, they've got 15 Xs, I know. And I know they worked really hard but I can't reward what they did today. There was an agreement we made and their behavior is not up to par. And I wanna give it to them. And even though I don't look forward to going down the video game route and learning all the boundaries that are involved with kids along those lines, there was a part of me that so desired to reward my children. And yet, Their behavior did not allow it. So I called the boys before me, and after many tears and disappointment on my end, they didn't get it. You see, I I couldn't, and I felt like this sounds like a small thing to you, but I felt like it was a very important lesson to even understand about God. God sets conditions. And the condition for your salvation, lost friend, is this, that you would surrender all of yourself to his lordship. There is not a part of you, and let me tell you this, even as a Christian who's been saved for now 20-some years, over 20 years, I still tremble for some reason at giving God complete lordship over my life. Five years ago, five years to the day from when you called me to pastor, I resigned at Whiteland Missionary Baptist Church. A month later, I began to wrestle with moving to Africa. Let me tell you, I began to tremble. It's one thing to go for two weeks on a mission trip. It's another thing to take your wife and three kids over there. And I wrestled, and I wrestled. And you know what I was wrestling with? God having complete control of my life. It was so hard. And I felt God calling me to that in the sense of giving it over to him, not to go, but just saying, God, if that's where you call me, that's where I'll go. And many nights I wetted that seat of that chair in my office, Calling out to God. And what it was about was not Africa. It was about me relinquishing control. Because I knew if I relinquish control, anything's on the table. I've been to Africa and I've seen the deplorable conditions and I've read the many books of men and women who came from first world countries to third world countries and I saw the loss of their spouses and the loss of their children and the deep heartache and the diseases and the things that maimed them for the rest of their life. And what I could not, what I was struggling to do is just let go. It was almost, this isn't the case, like I was seeking God for salvation again. I was seeking to surrender. You can't get saved twice. I know that. But the surrender, lost friend, that's what the condition God calls you to is to complete surrender. That you can go before God and say, God, I'm yours. All of my life is yours. I was so glad Brother Ron pointed out this morning in Sunday school. I was so glad he did it. He said the word what the word servant meant. In the scriptures, King James has scrubbed that. Almost every time, you know what it means? slave see a servant implies employment a slave implies ownership lost friend God will not save you until you surrender all of yourself that's a hard thing to do because if you're like me I have plans and aspirations I have a future that I've intricately designed of how I want it to look and yet To meet God's conditions, all people can. He opens it up to all. He desires to save all, but to all who meet his conditions of complete surrender. Lost friend who's a chronic seeker, God is not withholding salvation from you because of something that he doesn't like about you. He's withholding it because you've not met his conditions of complete surrender. And when you completely surrender yourself at the throne of grace, Transactions done. Amen. Why? Because God, through his spirit, can work faster to renew that nature. That's an amazing thing, right? It's not only that he changes the nature, how quickly he does it. The Bible teaches us in 1 John, he takes out the old nature and he puts in the new. Just that quick. God will do that to you this morning if you'll call out to him and you'll completely surrender. God wants to save all people. Even you. This morning, we're looking next week at going into revival a week, starting a week from now. I have great hopes for the lost people in our church. But listen, we don't have to wait for a week from now. If you feel God calling you this morning, this front bench has been used for how long? For many people to seek after God Until they find him. And many people at this very place, with many of these people sitting by watching, have watched God change a person's heart. I say watch. They saw the effects of it. They saw something took place this morning. God can do that for you. Let's all stand this morning. If you're lost and you feel that God is calling you to himself, have the firm assurance that God will readily save you if you'll come to him.